You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Aren't you glad this morning that we can go directly into the presence of God because of the gospel? Amen? Because our sins have been forgiven and because Christ died so that it might be so. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Uh, While you are turning there, just say a couple of things to you. Um, You might have seen the news this week um, that our little corner of the Funiac Springs is going to be seeing some growth in the very near future, over the next couple of uh, months, into a year, and even into five years. Um, and so I am just want to say to you, number one, I am excited about the very real prospect of all of these folks that are going to be right here within a mile and a half to two miles of our church here in the very near future. Um, but I also want to say to you that uh, in that excitement, we have a great responsibility um, because if God would see fit to give us such a gift as to bring people here right into the shadow of our steeple, what an opportunity we have to proclaim the gospel to them uh, because no doubt there will be many who move into that area who do not know Jesus um, and what a huge opportunity it is for us to share Christ with them. So, that being said, in the coming uh, days, weeks, months ahead, we're going to be sharing some things with you, uh, some ways that we're going to begin to try to uh, love our immediate neighbor in some very strategic ways. So, uh, I just want you to be prepared for that. But in the meantime, uh, know this, that uh, it is our responsibility as much as we can to love on those that are around us. So, huge opportunity. Uh, continue to love our community and uh, want to share those things with you um, as we move forward. John chapter 13 These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John's Gospel is written for this purpose. And by and large, up until this point, the Gospel has been explicitly written to those who do not yet believe. Uh, Jesus has gone about His earthly ministry proclaiming the Gospel, the good news of the Kingdom, and calling people to believe on Him as the living Son of God, the One who would die for them and rise again. Jesus has been calling people to believe this. But here as we turn toward the end of uh, John's Gospel, or toward the latter half of it, it would seem, though most of the latter half of John's Gospel is dedicated to a very short segment of time, just a week in Jesus' life. And these four chapters that we're beginning this morning, chapters 
uh, 13, 14, well, five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, those chapters uh, compose maybe just hours of time. And in this time, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples, to those who have believed and calls them to even greater faith. He's preparing them for his death. And it was with oil that Jesus was prepared in John chapter 12. Here, Jesus would begin preparing his disciples with water and you'll see it in a moment. One of the most beloved stories in all of the Bible, certainly in the Gospel of John, the washing of the disciples' feet with water. By the way, this is a detail that is not included by the other Gospel writers. Only John tells us this part of the story. And the story is significant. Its significance is found both in its symbolic nature and in the humility of Christ to do this and to set an example for the disciples. But we're going to spend our time this morning on the first 11 verses looking at that first reality, the symbolic nature of what Jesus is doing here. The meaning of washing His disciples' feet as that's what Jesus does first to prepare them. But we're not going to see it clearly until close to the end. So I'm going to ask you to hang with me so that you see what the symbolic significance is of what Jesus is doing here. And I hope, my prayer for you is that it would change your life as a Christian. As you see what Christ has done for you. And if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, that you would come and believe upon Christ and be saved today. So, if you found your place, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. As we look to John chapter 13, the first 11 Verses. The Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put, in, put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank You that as we come to Your Word that we can 
see what is so shockingly true. That Christ has come to seek and to save the lost. Not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. God, we come to see our Savior at our feet. And even as we come, God, we are reminded of how great this Gospel is. That You would save sinners. That You would give Your life for the guilty. You who are innocent in order that we might be forgiven and set free. And God, I pray that You would cause our hearts to swell with with worship this morning over what You've done so that as we see You at our feet, Jesus, we would only lift You high and lift it up in this place because You are holy and righteous and You are worthy of all of our worship. Lord, I pray that our pride would come down. God, that we would be humbled before Your cross. And Jesus, that you would be honored here. I pray for the lost, that they would come to know you as Savior and Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So, this section of John, chapters 13 through 17, has been called by many scholars the farewell discourse. There are these cycles in the Gospel of John and and each one of these cycles has specific significance when it comes to John's message. So if you're reading through the Gospel of John, you should see it framed in this way. And if you've been with us, maybe you've seen some of that so far as we've tried to look at some of it or maybe you're new to this Gospel. Just know this is the beginning of a new cycle. It is the farewell discourse. But it's much more than that. It is not just an opportunity to see the end of Jesus' life. The the structure and the substance of these four chapters is given in such a way that we might see it as Jesus' discourse on genuine discipleship. What does it mean to really follow Jesus? There's a clear window into that in this text and going forward in the next five chapters. What it requires what it looks like, what it results in, what is real discipleship. As I shared with you before, all of John has been primarily addressed to those who do not believe, calling them to believe upon Christ. That's the intended purpose. Belief in Jesus as the Son of the living God. But now, more directly toward believers, Jesus is calling them to further faith, to a faith that is deeper and rooted and, 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 and developed and strengthened. It's intended to instruct them to stir their faith and to devote their hearts to Christ in a greater way. So just note the structure. Here in chapter 13, Jesus demonstrates a model of discipleship when He washes the feet of the disciples and He gives them a new commandment that they should love one another by which the world would know that they are His what? Disciples, right? He's turning it toward them. If you go to the end of this section, John chapter 17, what do you have? You have what has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And that prayer is directed toward God in order that Jesus might pray for the oneness of His church, the unity of His church. And there would be multiple ways that He would pray for that And he's praying for his disciples. So those are the bookends. 
You go to the center of the section, and what do you find? John chapter 15, the vine and the branches discourse, where Jesus is telling the disciples that they must abide in Him because without Him they can do nothing. It's a picture of genuine discipleship. And then kind of woven in around that, encircling this center and within the bookends, you have Jesus teaching on the promise and the provision of the Holy Spirit the comfort that He would bring and the leadership that He would give to the church. The promise of hope and eternal joy despite any tribulation that they may face. In fact, the greatest tribulation that those disciples would face, Jesus leaving the earth and being alone and trying to figure out how to do this, and He says, let your hearts not be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You see, all of these things given in order that they might walk with Christ. Some of the most powerful and practical teaching in all of Scripture. By the way, just side note, believer John 14 was written to you. It's written to you that you might not be comforted, one of the, that you might be comforted and not troubled. One of the greatest evangelistic passages in all the Bible brings strength and comfort to the believer. You would think that if we're going to begin this section... In John chapter 13, you would think if we're beginning there, what you would find at the beginning of this discipleship journey is you would find all the disciples at the feet of Jesus. Wouldn't that make sense? Now what you would think you would find all the disciples following Jesus. So they're going to be at his feet worshiping him. But what's interesting is you find exactly the opposite. Shockingly. Instead of finding the followers of Jesus at his feet, you actually find Jesus at theirs. Does that not catch you off guard? It should. Well, the story is again set at Passover, as we've seen over and over again. That's the backdrop of the text. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Okay, so two concepts we've seen so far tied together. On the one hand, you have the feast of the Passover as the backdrop. So they are killing the Passover lamb for the atonement of the nation. All the while, Jesus is about to be killed, the lamb of God. His hour had come in order that he might, as the lamb of God, offer ultimate and final salvation. All of that happening And John tells us we're right here at that moment. And in the midst of that moment, here's what John, I love this phrase. Here's what John tells us about what Jesus did for his disciples. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Isn't that a precious truth that Christ not only loved them while they were in the world, but he loved them all the way to the end. It's a powerful verse. He loved his disciples. He spent time with his disciples. He ate with them. He talked with them. No doubt counseled them and encouraged them and prayed with them and instructed them and rebuked them and brought discipline to them because he loved them. But he didn't stop at his death. Jesus loved them all the way to the end. In the ultimate way, He gave His life for them and He goes all the way to the end and He kept loving them. Jesus never stopped loving His people, those who followed Him. 
The same is true for us. God shows His love for us in laying down His life for us. Jesus laid down His life and He loved us all the way to the end. And that's what Jesus is doing in these four chapters. He's loving us all the way to the end. He's showing us that the love that He displayed for them and would display for them on the cross was not just a saving kind of love, but a a sanctifying love that would go on loving them and developing them into followers. And so He is here with the disciples at the feast of the Passover on the very eve of His death, gathered in the upper room. John doesn't tell us that little note. The rest of the Gospel writers Tell us that note. And what we find is that Jesus is at the feet of his disciples, not the other way around. Notice verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. By the way, a little note there just to introduce what's coming later that we'll look at next week. This one who was the betrayer, a story that's coming. Jesus, in verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand and that He had come from God and was going back to God. Okay, So with, with His mission, the cross in mind, knowing that He had come incarnate into the world and that He's now going back to the Father because He's going to die for sinners. So with that in view, verse 4 says that He rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. An incredible moment. It was not only a shocking place to find the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, the feet of anybody for that matter. It is without question an echo of the previous chapter. You see the contrast here. If you've been with us, we see Mary Magdalene at the feet of Jesus, anointing His feet and preparing Him to go to die. Little did she know exactly what was happening. And yet, here we see Jesus preparing for His death, but He is at the feet of His disciples. And He's not anointing them, but He's Washing them. It's exactly inverted, isn't it? The one who should be worshipped, his feet anointed, a crown on his head is now sitting, kneeling on his knees before his disciples, washing their feet. It's a powerful image. It is Jesus emptying himself, humbling himself, And taking on the form of a servant. You may recall in John chapter 1, whenever John the Baptist was announcing Jesus, do you remember what he said? He said, I'm not even worthy to loose the sandal strap of the one that is coming. It's because in this day, touching the feet was a menial task. It's not something that anybody did. I mean, this was a menial task that was the, the, the menial tasks that were reserved for slaves were the things nobody else wanted to do. But touching the feet is even something slaves would not do. It's primarily something people would do for themselves. 
students of rabbis were even given menial tasks, maybe those like those following Jesus, but even they were not expected to touch the person's feet. And what John is saying is even that task, the one who's announcing Jesus, he says, even that menial low task, I'm not even worthy of that considering the Son of God. And watch this. Jesus does the very thing that John says he's not worthy of. Jesus goes to the very place that we should find ourselves. At the feet of His followers. Around a meal table, no less. Like, when's the last time you ate dinner with somebody and washed their feet? <laughs> I mean, we taught our kids, don't put your elbows on the table, right? Don't put your feet on the table, right? That's not something you do. My kids do it anyways, but don't do that, right? We're certainly not going to touch somebody's feet while we're trying to eat. And Jesus goes to this menial task. He is doing exactly what Philippians said that he later would had already done. Verse 5. Philippians 2 and verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This moment with the cross in view, he bows to his knees to wash the feet of his disciples, knowing that that was the gateway to him dying for them. That's the very next step. It's not just washing their feet. He's about to die in their place. It was only a picture of what was about to take place. And the question you should ask then is, in light of the cross, Jesus is washing their feet. The question you should ask is, why? Why, Jesus, did you wash their feet? And then in light of chapter 12, leading into chapter 13, you should ask, if that was preparation for Jesus, then how is this washing of their feet preparation for them? And Jesus answers both of these questions with the same answer. There are here in this passage two opposing objections. And they come from, of course, who you would expect them to come from, Peter. On the one hand, Peter says one thing and immediately he turns around and says something entirely different. And those two objections, we find the answer to this, to these two questions. So I want you to see the objections, okay? Verse number six, here's the first one. Lord, you will never wash my feet. You might emphasize the word my, because this is what Peter is doing. Verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's asking, Jesus, why, why are you before me washing my feet? Like this is backwards. It's shocking to Peter that he would find his Savior down at his feet. Jesus answers him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And here's the objection. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. He's saying, no, Jesus, this, this isn't right. 
This is shameful. This is an unacceptable thing. If we're going to do anything, Jesus, let me wash your feet. It's not only shameful in general in the culture, but think about this. This is his, his, his teacher. He's the disciple of Jesus, and he should be washing his master's feet. He's appalled. It should be said that the same reaction is ours whenever we're faced with the shamefulness of our sin and what it brings. Peter would later assault the arresting officer of Jesus and cut off his ear in order to stop Jesus' death because it was so shocking. Might I suggest to you that we're in the same boat. We don't even realize how shocking our sinfulness really is. We're faced with it. We're ashamed. And yet it is the love of Jesus to go to that place, that low place, in order that we might be saved. So Peter, not understanding now what Jesus was doing, says, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen. And here's the first point of significance. Verse 8. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, take note of this now, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus concludes, if he doesn't do this, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part of me. You've got no place with me. You'll not be with me. You won't be in heaven. You won't be saved. If I don't wash you, there is no way that you will be with me or have a share with me. It's not just relaxing the uh, intermediate application. Afterwards, he's meaning his death. Remember, Peter would not understand this. Washing is only a way that Peter would be with Jesus forever because of his coming death. You'll understand it later, Peter. So that's big. Peter's thinking, well, since you put it that way, Jesus, <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if I can't go to heaven without you washing me, then let's just get it on, right? Let's take a whole shower, right? Let's get hair washed and hands washed and the whole deal. We can get out the suds and Mr. Clean and whatever else we need to get clean, and I'm going to get clean right here. Whatever it takes, Jesus. So that comes to the second objection. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Peter's speaking in physical terms when he says this in verse 9. So let's just go ahead and get everything right, Jesus, right here. And Jesus' response is so incredibly important. Peter is looking at things from an earthly perspective, but Jesus answers in a symbolic nature. It becomes clear and practical. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash. In other words, he's saying, Peter, you, you've bathed. That's not the issue. He's clean except for his feet. The one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now put that in context of what Jesus says about Judas, and there's a pretty important thing to hear here. See, he says, you are clean, but not every one of you. He's not speaking in, in physical terms. He's speaking in spiritual terms because there's one who's a betrayer. There's a Judas among them. 
Peter was looking merely at the physical, but Jesus is saying, Peter, there is a cleaning that must take place that is much more important than you taking a physical bath. There's a cleansing of the heart that must happen. There's one among you whose heart is not clean. And you need to understand that the way toward being clean, the way to be made clean, is for me to wash you, for me to go to the cross. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. Peter, when I cleanse you, you are completely clean. And that's what Jesus is doing when He washes their feet. It's not just a a simple need for hygiene. It is a symbolic picture of what Jesus is about to do on the cross. He's showing them that when He goes to the cross and He cleanses their sin, that He's not just cleansing them partially, He's cleansing them completely. Which leads to the main truth of the passage. Jesus cleanses the sinner's heart completely through the blood of His cross. Jesus cleanses the sinner's heart completely through the blood of His cross. So get this. In the same way that Jesus is saying to Peter, you can scrub and you can wash and you can do all of these things and be completely clean and yet your feet still are not clean. Think about this. The moment you took your shower this morning, you stepped out of the shower. Hopefully you took a shower this morning. The moment you stepped out of the shower this morning and onto the floor, your feet were already dirty. The picture is no matter Peter, no matter how, no matter how much cleansing you do, you're you're still not going to be completely clean. But when I go to the cross for you, I am going to cleanse you completely. You have no ability to impact your own stain of sin in your life, but I'm going to completely cleanse your heart and your life to where your sin is as white as snow. If you trust in Christ, this is what happens in your life. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. We are completely clean. This is what David prayed in Psalm 51. There in the moment of his, some of his deepest sinful moments, David prays, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In this moment, he felt the dirtiness of his sin. And he needed to be cleansed. And not just partially, but completely. And the beautiful good news of the Gospel is that God has made a way in order that all of our sins might be forgiven. And that we, may be, that we be made completely clean before a holy God. So we just sang about God being holy. We come into His presence completely pure because of the blood of Jesus. And it is the only hope that we have, church. The only hope that we have to stand in the presence of a holy God is that our sins be forgiven in Christ. And when they are, they are clean completely. 
There are two primary things that we take away from this passage, at least the first part of the story before we get to Judas next week. Two key applications. Number one, those who are in Christ have been made completely clean. Past tense. If you are here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your sins have been completely forgiven. And there are some Peters in this room, if I had to guess. Ones in this room who would, who would say, yeah, but, but Pastor, I, you know, I, I know what the Gospel says, I know what Jesus has done, but I, I, I'm not sure, what about this mistake in my life? What about this sin in my life? Or what about if you go too far over here? And No, those who are in Christ are completely forgiven. We have a Gospel that is not dependent upon us doing anything to cleanse ourselves but fully dependent on the One who is able to cleanse us completely. And that is the picture of this text. No matter how much scrubbing that we try to do, no matter how much cleansing we try to do, no matter how much we try to stop this or stop that, or ask forgiveness for this or ask forgiveness for that, every attempt on our own ends in failure. But when Christ cleanses us, He cleanses us completely so that there is no more guilt, no more condemnation. We do not stand before God condemned any longer. This is the good news of the gospel. Listen to Hebrews 10. The writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled. In other words, it's already done. Sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The guilt of sin for the believer is completely washed away. Praise God. And so if you're, in a, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, this is incredibly encouraging news. Because our battle with sin every day is a hot and violent battle. There are days that we win the war against sin and there are days that we go to bed feeling so defeated and so much like a failure and so ashamed. Those fleeting thoughts that enter into our minds that we wrestle against and and sometimes that we linger at. Those reactions. Driving down the road and you have an outburst against the guy who pulled out in front of you. Right? You have a family member that just drives you crazy. But those reactions eventually become rooted. Bitterness takes hold of the heart. Unforgiveness rests there. And you battle it as heavy as you battle anything else in your life. Those moments where we compromise, we make choices that we know probably were not right along the line as they should have been. Eventually, those compromised choices become moral patterns. And we find ourselves like David, perhaps, having lost the joy of our salvation. Sometimes the war against sin as a believer can become this 
feeling of hopelessness or helplessness. Christ has given victory, but we struggle to get the victory every day over it. And we wonder if in our shame and in our guilt in these moments, if God has somehow abandoned us. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you need to know that Romans 8 is true for you. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That sin is no longer reigning over you. That the guilt is no longer yours because Christ went to the cross and bore your guilt in your place. He died on your behalf so that you might be reconciled to God. Now that does not mean that we can just sit back on our laurels in the war against sin either. It is true also that we must confess our sin to God. But even in that, think about 1 John 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But listen to what he says. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is this ongoing confession in the life of the believer whereby our original cleansing is what sets us free from the eternal condemnation of sin. But God continues to cleanse our hearts as we follow Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple Recognition of sin, conviction of that sin, and repentance and faith toward God once again. And God continues to forgive and cleanse our lives. It means that our sin stains, our permanent guilt is gone. And as we are cleansed daily, He continues to make us whiter than snow. Husbands, you have hopefully read Ephesians chapter 5 and know what this means when it comes to our wives. We're about to celebrate marriage here as a church. We are to wash our wives in the water of the word. It's an ongoing relationship between husbands and wives whereby we lead them spiritually as Christ shepherds us and our souls. The same thing is happening daily washing us in the water of the word. So that's the first thing, the first takeaway. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, know this, that you are clean and that you must continue to walk with Christ. The second thing, though, is for those who do not yet believe the gospel, who do not yet know Christ. The same is true for you. All who would turn to Christ in repentance and faith will be made clean Completely. It is certainly true that the one who was not yet clean among them, had he turned in repentance and faith toward Christ, he too would have been made clean. Because there is no sinner that has sinned so greatly that the grace of God is not sufficient to save. Anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be made clean completely. So if you are here this morning and you are apart from God, you do not yet know Christ. You can say, well, what about this pastor? What about what I've done here? What I've done there? There is nothing too great. There is no sin too grievous that the blood of Christ is not able to save. Amen, church? You'll trust in Christ this morning. You see, at the very moment... 
that we would that we would grovel at the feet of Jesus for mercy. The story turns such that Jesus is at our feet washing us clean. Do you see that? We come to the place that that no Jesus, you should come to I, I should come to your feet to serve you. It's at that very moment that Jesus was giving his life for us. The one who is exalted above all the earth. The one who humbled himself and became a servant died in our place. And here's the good news that in Jesus' blood, any sinner who turns to trust in Christ is made clean completely. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The picture is sin is blood red. It, does, it has blood guilt. It deserves death. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is death such that every one of us, unless something changes, is facing an eternal death, spiritual death in a place called hell. But the picture here is that though they are red as scarlet, they will become white as snow because Christ forgives And the opportunity, the choice that is before you is, will you be willing and obedient to the gospel or will you turn and refuse and rebel against God? The good news is that anyone who would turn and trust in Christ, your sins will be made as white as snow, forgiven and cleansed. And so we must come. We must trust in the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all and righteousness. Would you bow your heads with me all across the room? We want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. To trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're here this morning. You've never trusted in Christ. You're separated from God. You need to be forgiven today. You need to turn away from your sin and trust only in Jesus. He died on the cross in your place and His Blood is to cleanse you from your sin today. And not only that, the very one who is willing to cleanse you completely at your feet today is the very one that becomes the object of your worship. King of kings and Lord of lords, because he's alive. He's risen from the dead. Today, if you would trust in him with all of your heart, the Bible says that he will save you. Others of you in this room, you live in guilt and condemnation. You struggle with wondering, has God really forgiven you? I want you to be assured today, believer. Not based on your own merit, not based on anything that you could do, or maybe you've not done bad enough. I, I don't want any of that this morning to be your assurance. But the blood of Jesus alone, with every fiber of your being, my prayer for you is that you 
know that you are cleansed completely. Christ has forgiven your sin as far as the east is from the west. There is no more sin guilt. Christ bore that for you. And so go and be free. Serve the Lord in holiness. Love Him with all that you are. Obey Him because He's worthy today. And so in just a few moments, we want to invite you to come to this altar. Maybe you need to spend some time confessing sin to the Lord today. Maybe you just need to thank the Lord for His forgiveness in your life. Or maybe today you want to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We want to invite you to come. Would you stand with me all across the room? As Dylan leads us, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing and you come this morning. Lord Jesus, God, we thank you that you have forgiven our sin as far as the east is from the west. Jesus, you paid our sin debt on the cross. We pray that today, that you would remind us as believers that we've been forgiven. And that if there's someone here who's never trusted in Christ, that you would draw them to yourself today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as Dylan leads us this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.